Today on Blue 58, the Packers have made the cuts necessary to trim their roster to 53, at least for now. What do we make of the initial roster, and what's all this about trading for a punter? Blue 58! Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58, the one and only podcast of thepowersweep.com. I'm your host, John Meerdink. Very happy to be with you here for another episode. We have gone through cutdown day. We've emerged on the other side. The Packers have 52 people on their roster right now because they had to cut one extra to make room for the punter they traded for. All in all, not all that many big surprises. We'll get to some of the stuff that we got wrong here in a second. Most of the stuff I think I'm pretty happy to be wrong about, though we do have a couple of questions. We'll get to those in a second. As far as roster predictions go, let's start with what we got right. First and foremost, wide receiver, it seems exactly right. There were five locks on the roster, and then uh, Malik Taylor. That was it. And that's how it turned out today. Uh, Jawan Winfrey, it seems, is probably a good bet to come on the practice squad. I would bet somebody like Reggie Bagleton actually ends up there as well. Uh, but uh, it, it wasn't that big of a surprise as a position, and wouldn't you know it, we got it right. We also technically got the edge group right. I said last week during our final podcast episode uh, before we did our roster prediction or in which we were doing a roster prediction that I had Tipa G- Nalii as the uh, the fifth edge. I changed my mind after seeing the third preseason game, changed that to Chauncey River. So technically we did get that one right as well, giving myself half correct. Beyond that, a lot of things not correct. Uh, predicted the Packers would keep um, Kurt Bankert. They did not. I'm quite happy to see that. I don't think we need to spend much time stressing over the third quarterback. Beyond that, some some bigger questions about roster construction. The Packers picked Isaac Yadam over KB on Ento. I think Ento's got the higher ceiling coverage-wise. He's a better athlete, but I think they like Yadam's uh, special teams contributions and more solid tackling there. So the uh, acquisition via trade, that is Yadam, gets the nod over KB on Ento, though I would bet Ento, if he's not claimed, will end up in Green Bay in the practice squad. The Packers seem to like what he's got going on there and maybe just need some work on some other parts of his game. Run it back, try it again next year. Ben Braden did not make the final roster. This is probably my biggest surprise other than stuff going on with the safeties, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, Jake Hansen makes the roster. Ben Braden does not. Uh, I was not all that impressed with Jake Hansen in the preseason. And it looked like I I think the Packers were pretty set at center beyond Josh Myers. We know that Lucas Patrick can play there if he's got to. He has started there for the Packers before. We know that Elton Jenkins can play center at a high level. And, you know, some stuff going on with David Bakhtiari in the short term limits his availability there. But uh, I wouldn't have guessed, obviously, that it's Hanson making the team as the, the ninth offensive lineman. Maybe this shouldn't be all that much of a surprise, though. Uh, Zach Cruz writes on Twitter, Packers center Jake Hansen, who made the team as the ninth offensive lineman, actually had a better overall grade and pass blocking grade at Pro Football Focus this preseason than Ben Braden, who was released. Hansen was the Packers' fourth highest graded offensive lineman of the preseason. Look, I don't claim to pay like minute attention to the preseason or to the offensive line during the preseason, but that wouldn't have checked out with the eye test with uh, what I was seeing. Maybe we're stacking up a few negative plays there, but it looked like his snaps when he was playing center were not super crisp. Mm, there's a lot more that goes into this evaluation, though. So 
guess we just talk, chalk that up to the Packers and see how this works out. I would expect that Ben Braden is going to end up somewhere throughout the league, though. There is just not enough offensive linemen to go around. And if someone can get him at this point, I think they would have to be pretty happy with that. Cole Van Lannen is also on the outs for right now in Green Bay. This, too, a little bit of a surprise. It seemed like he had some internal support there, seemed to be playing pretty well, and does have that at least nominal tackle guard versatility. But still, he is out right now in Green Bay. Related to this, though, we got a good question from Carl Anderson in our Discord server, wondering about what the Packers do on the offensive line. With David Bakhtiari to the physically unable to perform list and, you know, a couple other cuts here, the Packers are pretty light on offensive linemen here. So Carl asks, hypothetically, what kind of guy would we like them to bring in on the offensive line? Do you bring in a veteran guard to strengthen the inside? Do you bring in a right tackle instead of Dennis Kelly to let Turner play right guard? Uh, Do you bring in an interim left tackle to allow uh, Elton Jenkins to play left guard? So I think the, the first two there, or the second two there, are out. Uh, for right now. I think the Packers want Dennis Kelly, another thing that we got wrong, uh, to to be on the outside. And I think the Packers are thinking of, of Billy Turner as their starting right tackle. They don't want to bump him inside. If it was me making the calls, I, I might have been thinking about Kelly on the outside and Turner bumping inside because then you, you have fewer variables at guard right now. But if Royce Newman can get you where you want to go, I guess you roll with that and, and get really athletic on the inside with John Runyon there too. Um, I don't think they're looking to move Alton Jenkins off of left tackle right now, and the chances of getting a left tackle who's going to be starting caliber week one at this point seem somewhere between slim and none, and probably closer to the none size there. So I wouldn't worry about left tackle too much. The idea of bringing in a veteran guy uh, to play inside, though, is intriguing, though. And uh, a name popped up late today that might be worth watching. Lane Taylor was waived by the Houston Texans. Now, he was waived with an injury designation, so there may be something you want to check out there, and he has been hurt uh, pretty extensively the last couple of years. But if you need a veteran plug-and-play interior lineman who you know can fit in the Packers system, I mean, there's your guy. If he's healthy, Lane Taylor solves a lot of potential issues inside if the Packers need depth at guard. Now, he's not going to play center, but that would allow you to move some other pieces around. Maybe it frees up Lucas Patrick at center more, and maybe you bump off Jake Hansen there. I feel just a little bit stronger about Lane Taylor than I would about Jake Hansen at this point. And this is as good a time as any to remind people that this is just the initial 53, or actually 52 as the case may be. We are going to see more moves over the next couple of days. We've got waiver claims happening throughout the day tomorrow. And then practice squad moves happening after the waiver period ends tomorrow as well. So just because guys have made the 53 now doesn't mean that's where they're going to stay. So watch for more moves and counter moves as time goes on. Another place we were wrong was Tyler Lancaster. More broadly speaking, we were wrong about the number of defensive linemen the Packers would keep. I predicted five. They're going to end up keeping sixth. Now, I know this means that I'm wrong about something, but... I'm actually in favor of keeping more defensive linemen if they can. We've talked about the Packers having a bit of a size deficit on the defensive line before. If nothing else, and I know there's a lot of people out there who are not big fans of Tyler Lancaster, keeping Tyler Lancaster allows you to keep a little bit more size on your roster. If nothing else, he is big. And in the right circumstances, however limited those circumstances may be, he can play a pretty reliable role on your defensive line. You're not going to get a lot of pass rush out of him. You're not going to get a lot of push against the run from him. But 
He can be pretty stout at times. And he's another big body, something they don't have a lot of. So honestly, that's not the the worst thing in the world to be wrong on. Keeping some athletic-ish or good testing 300-pounders in the building is never a bad idea. Isaiah McDuffie also looks like he's made it through, which means the Packers appear to be keeping five inside linebackers. Though I would guess if they make any moves on the waivers, we're probably going to be saying goodbye to one of or both of uh, Isaiah McDuffie or Ty Summers. One of those two guys seems like they'd probably be the first guy on the block. But McDuffie, pretty good athlete. Looks like he's probably going to be a core special teamer for whenever he is active on game day. Finally, the the last big area of, not concern, but where, where I had questions about, was Henry Black and Vernon Scott both making the roster over Ennis Gaines or Christian Uphoff. The weird part here is not that Black or Scott made it over Gaines or Uphoff. It's that both Black and Scott made it over Gaines and Uphoff together. If you'd have swapped any one of those guys, uh, any one of those first two guys, either of those first two guys, for either of the second two guys, I would not have been surprised at all. It just seems like there's some redundancy there with Black and Scott uh, that you are able to change up a little bit with Gaines and or Uphoff. Them's the breaks sometimes. Looking at this from the outside looking in, uh, the Packers have a better grasp, obviously, of what's going on here than we do. Uh, and so they're going in a bit of a different direction. Uh, but I think it is worth noting that this is a little bit surprising given what we saw in the preseason and given the athletic profile of some of these guys as well. Though Scott, in particular, is an excellent athlete and uh, seems to have great speed and looks like a core special team or two. Other thoughts related to cutdown day. Uh, David Bakhtiari ends up on the physically unable to perform list. Not a huge surprise there, but worth noting that it happened. The Texans, in addition to releasing Lane Taylor, also cut Kadar Holman today, which means that the Packers ultimately traded Holman, uh, who was not going to make their roster, for a seventh-round pick to a team that didn't ultimately end up even keeping him. Everybody should be trading with Houston at this point. In fact, we should probably go back to Houston and see if there's anything else that they want that we have and uh, just ask if if they'll take nothing for it and uh, give us something. You never know. Uh, Maybe we trade another conditional seventh-round pick uh, and um, just see who you get back. Say, make us an offer and, um, you know, see what comes out of it. If it's, it goes back to that old idea that I've talked about a few times over the years, the GM heat check. If you think that you are a smart general manager and you've identified someone that you think is a dumb general manager, you should be calling that person just to see what you can get. If you think you're smart and they're dumb, see what you can get out of them. In Houston, it looks like there's a mark there. Let's see what we can get out of them. Uh, Hunter Bradley has technically made the roster for now. Reading the reports coming out of Green Bay from the beat, it sounds like that is probably going to be short-lived. In my written roster prediction, I actually said that I expect them to get a a long snapper from outside the building. Right now, they haven't done that. Let's see what happens tomorrow. Finally, I'm really happy for Jack Heflin uh, making the roster as an undrafted free agent. Uh, That is quite an accomplishment at a fairly crowded position group. Like we said earlier, it was a surprise that the Packers kept six. Um, Making it and being not the sixth guy on the roster, that's quite an accomplishment. We are still not out of pandemic times. Things are different than they were uh, two years ago. It is more challenging now for undrafted free agents to make the roster. The landscape is just different, and uh, he made it, and nobody can take that away from him. 
I guess Brian Gudikins can take that away from him. It doesn't appear that anyone's going to take it away from him, at least in the short term. I had a good question uh, from Discord about cut down day in general that I thought we should address here. Uh, Old Packers fan asked, as the initial 53 has been announced, is there anything to read into the order in which the cuts were announced? As an example, Dexter Williams was announced very early, but Patrick Taylor much later. Is that implicitly ranking their position somewhere between 80 and 54 for the Packers? Related, is there any chance J.K. Scott or J.J. Molson are signed to the practice squad? So that first question first, I don't think there's a lot to be read into the order in which guys are released. Some of it has to do with when their agents find out, because that's a lot of this sourced reporting, unless it's the player himself tweeting it out or putting it on Instagram or whatever. Most of these leaks and reports are coming from agents. So a big part of this is when their agents find out. We know the Packers are working through this as a process today, so you may be able to read some of the ranking into that, but it's mostly the agents and things like that. So it's hard to know the true order of when things come out because we're not necessarily getting the information, the order that players are finding out. A lot of it really does depend on how connected to the media their agents happen to be. As far as the practice squad, I would say Molson, yes, Scott, no. They kept J.J. Molson around throughout last year. It seems like his entire purpose in camp this year was to give, J, uh, to give Mason Crosby a bit of a break. That could very well be the same sort of situation in uh, in training camp this year. If they are looking at Molson as a true backup kicker, he does have one thing working against him now that would have probably worked to his benefit in the past. In the past, you could bump up a uh, practice squad player's salary to be just identical to what he would be making on the 53-man roster. So there are different, within the collective bargaining agreements, different compensation structures for guys on the 53 and guys on the practice squad. Don't cry too hard for the guys in the practice squad. They're still making a pretty good living, but you can make a lot more money being on the 53. In olden days, two years ago, you could bump up a guy's salary, pay him essentially a full salary while keeping him on the practice squad, and not have him take up a roster spot on the 53. The NFL in their last collective bargaining agreement says, no, no, we're not going to do that anymore. So Molson, nominally a guy who could have benefited from something like that if the Packers are kind of keeping him around as a soft backup to Crosby, is not going to be able to benefit from that this year. However, given that the Packers kept him around when they didn't necessarily need him last year, I would say there's a pretty good bet they're going to end up keeping him around this year. Finally, the last big development today is something we need to talk about all on its own. The Packers traded for a punter. The Packers give up a 2023 sixth-round pick and get back from the Los Angeles Rams a 2023 seventh-round pick and punter Corey Bajorquez. So who is Corey Bajorquez? He's six feet tall, 208 pounds, out of New Mexico. Go Lobos, one of my wife's favorite college football teams. She spent a good bit of time in Santa Fe, so she likes uh, New Mexico a lot. Uh, And uh, as a result, uh, Mr. Bajorquez is one of her favorite players kind of automatically. What's the deal here? Uh, the Packers are n- not happy with J.K. Scott. Uh, too inconsistent, though he graded out pretty well uh, compared to Bajorquez last year. In fact, according to Pro Football Focus, uh, Scott's Pro Football Focus grade last year was higher than Bajorquez, who punted for the Buffalo Bills last year. 77.9 for Scott to 70.1 for Bajorquez. Uh, Scott's hang time last year was 4.57 per kick. Uh, Bajorquez was only 4.45. Uh, the difference is in their average per punt. Punting in Buffalo, 
Uh, Corey Bajorquez averaged 50.8 yards per punt last year. Uh, that is up from uh, 45.5 for Scott. It's a consistency issue. That's what it comes down to uh, for Scott. He just was not able to do it consistently. And I'm not really sure what, what PFF is, is grading there on punting because if, if you're looking at his overall performance as a punter last year, I don't know how you get to 77.9. Uh, that's a pretty decent grade for a punter. It was just it just seemed really inconsistent, and with uh, Sean Menenga fiddling with his mechanics uh, throughout his time in in Green Bay, just a a strange kind of situation for Scott altogether. Um, I can't blame the Packers for trying something different, even if Bohorquez isn't necessarily all that much better than Scott, and I think there's some good reason to think he could be. It's hard to not just wonder what else is out there. You don't want to just stick with a guy who's okay at best and pretty bad at worst at times uh, just because you've got him around. You shouldn't keep the familiar option just because he is the familiar option. Maybe Bajorquez is better, maybe he's not. Uh, but I, I think at this point it is time to try something new, both with Scott and uh, with Hunter Bradley. As far as Bajorquez himself, some interesting details about him. He's a left-footed punter, but he is right-handed himself, himself an ordained minister as well. According to an interview that he did with the Buffalo Bills last year, uh, you should check this out, by the way, uh, Google 20 questions with Corey Bohorquez, worth listening to the entire three-minute or so video. He's got a couple nicknames, Golden Boy and Bojo. Uh, he plays four instruments, but prefers the ukulele. His favorite superhero is Iron Man. He likes to listen to reggae and classic rock on game day to get in the mood for punting. He owns a 1966 Mustang, and potentially concerning, he says he gets cold easily. That may be a little bit tongue-in-cheek. He was talking about preferring hot coffee over cold coffee or iced coffee in the interview at that point, so I wouldn't worry too much about him getting cold in Green Bay, but uh, I guess he does get cold uh, in Green Bay. If you're going to get anything, cold is potentially something that you could be. So we've got a new punter. Uh, It's Corey Bajorquez, uh, whose name I have meshed up 37 times already. Uh, You've not heard it because I edited it out. I had to practice it all afternoon. I was annoying my family by saying Corey Bajorquez. It's kind of a fun name to say, uh, but that's all we really know about him right now. They seem to really like him in LA. They just kept uh, Johnny Hecker because he's a really good punter and he restructured his contract. So um, the Packers make an upgrade at punter. There you go. Want to give a... uh, a quick shout out to our Patreon page today. No user contribution shout outs today, but wanted to mention something new we are starting on Patreon for this year and going forward. We're going to do a monthly AMA that is accessible only to uh, Patreon subscribers. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything, and we'll be dropping our first one tomorrow. Uh, ask me anything about anything. We've got questions about uh, playing football, about cooking, about Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff in there, and I think it's going to be a lot of fun to check out. So if you've got questions on your mind, uh, consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You'll have access to that and other content, as well as uh, interviews that we are doing with people throughout the year that we are releasing early on Patreon. We dropped one early with Mark Beach this week. You're getting it in your feed uh, anyway later this week, but you can hear it early at patreon.com slash thepowersweep. So head there. Uh, Select any contribution amount you like, and you will have access to that bonus content, as well as our Discord server, where you can hang out with Packers fans from all around the world. It's a pretty great place to be, and uh, I enjoy it a lot. So consider doing that and getting access to that as well. Let's talk about a book. 
Blood, Sweat, and Chalk, Chapter 20. We are very nearly to the end. Our third from last chapter brings us to a discussion about the double-A gap blitz. As far as defenses go, this one is a bit of a hobby horse for me. We talk about this a lot because the Packers run into it a lot, courtesy of a guy by the name of Mike Zimmer. He likes the double-A gap blitz a lot. So we don't have to spend a lot of time talking about interesting details about the scheme or its development or, or really anything, partly because we're familiar, but partly because we see it... Uh, see it so much in uh, in Green Bay, and partly, I guess, on the third hand there, because it's really pretty simple. What is a double A-gap blitz? It's sending two guys through the A-gaps. Right? That's it. That's the show for, the, for today. But seriously, though, uh, the double A-gap blitz is effective in part because of, and sometimes, I guess, in spite of, its simplicity. The A-gap is the area between the guard or the center and the guard to both the left and right side. That's where the defense is trying to attack there. And you can see why it would cause cascading problems for the offensive line, because if you're having to pinch toward the middle to block uh, block guys coming right up the middle, it leaves you with a numbers problem just about everywhere else on your offensive line. That, of course, is exactly what the defense is trying to do. And it's a wonderfully effective defense because, as pointed out in this chapter, if you run it effectively, there's really no weak spot other than trying to get the ball out quickly, which is basically what the defense wants you to do anyway. They don't want you to be able to take shots downfield. They're playing, in all likelihood, tight man-to-man defense on the outside. So unless you get a really good break, chances are there's not going to be a lot of options for you if you can't get the ball out almost immediately. There weren't a lot of interesting details about the development of this defense, in part because it is, one, pretty new. The actual double-A gap blitz that they talk about being implemented at at a regular level dates back only to about 2001, though I'm certain, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it was a big defensive presence basically since blitzes were invented. That's just the way things go in, in football. But secondly, because it's, again, it's just that simple. So let's talk about Packers connections. We've got a couple sad ones here, but let's take a little trip of, uh, of down memory lane. So this chapter opens and, and focuses on throughout the 2007 Giants, which is a, a team that should conjure up some bad, unfortunate memories for Packers fans because of the 2007 NFC Championship game. That, of course, was Brett Favre's final game with the Green Bay Packers, and it ended with Brett Favre throwing an interception in overtime. So I had to had to ask, had to look, because I wondered, was Brett Favre pressured on that play as a result of a double A-gap blitz pressure? As it turns out, the Giants did bring a delayed double A-gap pressure on that play. They had two linebackers lined up off the ball, which is a little bit unusual for, for many double A-gap blitzes. Sometimes you'll just bring guys right up there in the gap to start, often right behind a nose tackle who is head up on the center anyway. So you've got three guys lined up right in the middle of the offensive line ready to attack. But they brought a delayed um, a delayed double-A gap blitz with some twisting pressure, one linebacker darting behind the other. But the Packers picked it up well. And I would say it was not the cause of the interception because the protection was pretty good. Favre just made a bad call there. And it's interesting that the other game that gets a lot of attention as far as aggressive blitzing in this this chapter was the Packers' 1997 loss to the Colts here. 
Now, some other facts of that game. They talk about the, the blitzing being a problem, and maybe it was, but Favre was 18 of 25 passing for 363 yards and three touchdowns in that game. He also threw two interceptions and was sacked three times, and the loss probably had more to do with two fluky touchdowns that the Colts scored on returns than it did the blitzing because the Packers, again, were pretty effective on offense. But it's interesting that Favre was victimized by this very scheme or this very approach on defense twice. And if you're looking at a uh, a scheme that can trip up Brett Favre, I guess what would you look for? You want Brett Favre to make decisions quick and you want him to gamble. How do you get him to do that? Blitz him and get pressure on him quickly. Sure, he might rip some unexpected throw out of nowhere and beat you deep downfield occasionally, but sometimes you might force him into making a bad decision and just throwing up a ball that he hasn't thought through all that much. And getting Brett Favre to do things without thinking was always a pretty good approach, and it worked for a couple defenses that uh, relied on a double-A gap blitz, as we learned in this chapter. Interesting note uh, here in this uh, little historical trip down um, the the memory lane, I guess memory lane for a couple, for this particular defensive scheme. Uh, Packers connections throughout, and really a lot throughout this book as well. Hope you enjoyed Cut Down Day, because that's all I've got for you on this episode of Blue 58. I would appreciate it if you enjoyed this episode or enjoyed one of our other offerings for you as well. If you would go ahead and share it, uh, that's going to help more people find the show, and it's going to get more people involved in this conversation we're having around the Green Bay Packers, which ultimately is going to help all of us, me included, become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.